Please remain standing for our epistle lesson and our sermon text from Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Again, give your ear to God's holy word. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and your good promises to us through your son, Jesus Christ. As we meditate on it today, please press them home into our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I keep a picture on my computer of my friend, uh, Tom, greeting his adopted daughter at the airport when she finally came home. She was adopted from Uganda as a teenager, and it was a many years long, arduous process to adopt her. All adoptions are, are a long process, and this one was international. Tom and his wife, Cindy, had to take several trips overseas to fill out paperwork and, and meet with officials. And in the photo that I have on my desk, on my computer, Tom has her wrapped up in a giant, tender hug, and the look on his face is indescribable in its joy and relief. And I've kept that picture not only for the sentimental value of it, but because it's always been a reminder to me that we are all, as our text says today, adopted sons of God. Tom's reaction to his adopted daughter reminds me that this is the way that God welcomes us. And I need that reminder. And I bet that you do too. Because what we all have through our adoption in Christ can be a very difficult thing for us to get our minds around. It can actually be a very difficult thing for us to believe, to move from our head to our hearts. In fact, a few months after uh, Tom and Cindy's daughter came home from Uganda, we were sitting with them and asking how things were going. And Cindy told us that uh, she went into her daughter's room to clean one day and was kind of annoyed because she found that she had left her lunch plate and her half-eaten sandwich uh, under her bed instead of bringing it to, uh, to the sink like she was supposed to. But then as she tidied up more of the room, she found some snacks behind the books on her desk. And then when she opened the drawer to put clothes away and found Oreos in the sock drawer, she knew that her daughter was literally socking away food, was hiding food. You see, the privileges of 
the relationship, the love that she had from her parents to a certain degree had not gripped her heart. It hadn't sunk in. And every child, whether adopted or not, will test their parents' love from time to time. It takes time for all children to completely know that they are loved and accepted by their parents. And the same thing is true with us and God. Like Pastor Sexton said in his sermon last week, we stagger at the promises of God because they're so great. They're too wonderful, it seems. We are all, including myself, to one degree or another, like the sons in Luke's parable of the prodigal in Luke 15. You'll remember, um, we, we just heard about that a few weeks ago, and the thing that stuck out to me when we were studying it was that both sons believed themselves to be slaves and orphans. Even the younger son, when he came back in repentance, said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer to be worthy uh, worthy to be called your son, treat me like a slave. And the older son, too, likewise complained that he had never had a goat or a party, and that he, had to, he graded at having to obey his father like a slave. I've been in the fields slaving away for you, he says. And the parable ends with the father speaking to him and saying, everything that I, has, I have is yours. It's, it's as if he's saying, if you want a goat, if you want a party, just just go to the fridge and get one. <laughs> this is your house. I had friends um, that I used, I used to go over to their house all the time, and one time uh, their, their dad pulled me aside and said, quit asking for snacks. Like, here's the fridge. Here's how the door works. Go. It, this is your house. Go and get the food that you need. Just go to the fridge. Neither of the sons in Luke 15 could enjoy their inheritance, and neither of them had an intimate relationship with their father, and all of it was because they did not grasp their identity as sons. And we all have a tendency to do the same thing, to say to God, I know that I've messed up, and I know that you are forgiving and welcoming. I'll make it up to you, and I'll do better this time. Let me be your slave. That was the situation that Paul is writing into in the book of Galatians. We see that, that he writes, and he's astonished in chapter 1, that they're abandoning the gospel, the gospel of grace, that God has saved them and accepted them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 5, he says that he's worried about them because they are seeking to be justified by the law. See, Judaizers had come in after Paul had planted the church in Galatia and began to tell him, yes, it's good that you believe in Jesus, and, and yes, he is the Messiah, but you need also to be circumcised. You need also to keep the ceremonies. God will accept you because of Jesus and if you do all the right ceremonies and keep his precepts. And so Paul writes to them and reminds them about their adoption through Jesus Christ, that they are no longer slaves, but sons, as it says in verse 7. Paul wants to press home their adoption and ours through Christ so that they rest in that rather than in their performance. And so he reminds them of their adoption and that their adoption brings for them a new status before God, a new experience of God, and a new inheritance from God. 
That's the sections that we'll take as we look through the verses. A new status, their adoption, and ours gives us a new status before God, a new experience of God, and an inheritance from God. First, our adoption brings us a new status before God. That's verses 1 through 5. He says this beginning in, verse, in chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. In these first two verses, Paul explains that our change in status before God by setting up an analogy. He says, he, he says that, uh, use the illustration of a young child, an heir of a great estate. When he's a minor, he's no different from a slave, he says, since he is subject to guardians and stewards. Technically, even if he owns everything, even if he is in authority, it's easy for a young heir in that position to feel like a slave. His guardians order him about and keep him under discipline. He's told when to wake up and when to go to school and what to study and what to wear and when to go to bed, and, and they just have control of his life. Even so, Paul says in verse 3, when we were spiritual children, we were in slavery under the elements of the world. Now, there's a lot of debate among the commentators about What's this nature of the slavery that Paul is talking about? And what are these, these elements of the world? It's a, a Greek word, the stoichia. It gets translated different ways. The elements of the world, elementary principles, uh, elementary spirits. Uh, the word literally means like the elements that make up matter, as the Greeks understood it in that time. But it came to mean the beginnings, the principles, the building blocks of anything, like the elements of mathematics or the elements of style. Um, we, he says we were enslaved under these elements. So what are they? How are we enslaved to them? We've really got three options. One is that he's talking about the Old Testament ceremonial law. He says in verse 4 and 5 that we are redeemed from the law, and he's already set up that comparison in chapter 3 from verses 23 to 25, where he says that the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. So he could be talking about the Old Testament law. Um, this is uh, God's tutor to teach us the elements to bring us to Christ. But most of the Galatians uh, the, were a Gentiles, and they didn't grow up under the Old Testament law. So he says in verse 8 and 9 that they were enslaved or they were um, bound to those things by nature that are not God's. In other words, their paganism. They were enslaved to their sins and their lusts and the dictates of their false deities. Their relationship with God was remote and anxious and burdened. Everyone, even those without the law of Moses, are trying to live up to some standard. Everyone, whether you come to Christ at one or 100, begins in some way in the world, enslaved to the elementary principles. And on a third level, he's also using it in this context as a, a picture of how Christians in some degree fail to live up to the experience of their freedom and joy that they have in Christ. And really, I think Paul's using it every way, all three ways. I think he wants to imply all of them. Slavery, he's saying, is the experience uh, that encompasses Jews and Gentiles, irreligious and religious. It's the experience of everyone who seeks to relate to God by earning. 
You will view God as a slave master. But what moves God's people from slavery to sonship is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the time that the Father had sent had set had fully come, He sent forth His eternal and beloved Son, the divine Son. And this Son did not come in splendor or glory, but He came to where we were, born of a woman and born under the law. He is truly God and truly man. He was born under the demands of God's law and lived like a slave. Why? He says to redeem those who were under the law. Redeem is a word that means to release a slave from his owner by paying the slave's full price. In both Roman society and in the Old Testament, um, you could purchase a slave's freedom from their master if you paid off his debt. Jesus completely fulfilled the law's demands on your behalf and paid your full price to God's law. And what was that price? The curse of death. Christ has redeemed us, Paul tells us, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus died under the penalty of death on the cross for you, completely paying all of your debt to God's law. You are redeemed. You are free. But that is not the end of it. All of that, the incarnation of God's only and eternal beloved Son into human history, His living a perfect life, His dying a substitutionary death, all serves a purpose. Why did He die and rise for you? He tells us in verse 5, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The eternal Son of God became the suffering servant of God so that you might become God's sons. The theologian J.I. Packer offers this three-word summary of the gospel. The gospel, he says, is adoption through propitiation. He says, I do not ever expect to find a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Adoption through propitiation. No longer slaves, Paul says, but sons. It's a change of status. And this is, this is the difference. A slave's status is entirely dependent upon what he does. It's entirely dependent upon his behavior. But a child's status, a son's status, cannot be affected by behavior. Behavior cannot touch familial status. All right, let me show you. Let's just take two children as an example. Okay, so for ease of reference, we'll call one Agnes and the other we'll call Catherine. All right, we're just pulling out of thin air here. Okay, and their mother says, okay, y'all, in, and she would say y'all, okay, y'all, in 15 minutes, we're going to have supper, so everybody stay clean. Don't go outside and play in the rain. 
And so Agnes goes and reads books for 15 minutes on the couch. And then Catherine goes outside and rolls around in the mud and slathers up to where you can't even hardly see her face. And the 15 minutes come by and both of them come to the table. Okay, now the question is this. Which one is more Kazansky? Right? It's a nonsensical question. Because family status, whether adopted or born into, is something that is received. It's not earned. And therefore, your behavior can't touch it. Now, your behavior may affect your enjoyment of that status. There may be baths and there may be discipline. God says in the book of Hebrews that he disciplines us as a father disciplines his child. But you need to know this. God loves you unconditionally. Because all of the conditions were met by Jesus Christ, and they are given to you by grace. God loves when you obey, and God does not love you because you obey. God is pleased when you obey his commands, and God is not pleased with you because you obey his commands. Right? He purposed from before the foundation of the world to adopt you as his child, and that is the ground of your relationship with him. And yet, it is so easy for us to think of our salvation only in terms of our redemption and not our adoption. That is only as the transfer from us of our sins, but not the transfer to us of all the rights and privileges of God's Son. And so the question is do you think of your relationship with God in terms of a father child relationship? Do you revel in what God has done for you in adopting you, as the Apostle John does when he says, see what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. One way that you can tell that your adoption through Christ really hasn't gripped your heart is if sin, your personal sin, makes you anxious and insecure. The question is, does your sin drive you to God or does your sin drive you away from God in remorse and resolution? Or does it drive you to God in repentance and faith? Are you like the younger son? I'll, I'll try better this time. I'll do better next time. That kind of insecurity over sin can even mask a, an, a great outward zeal a great outward strivings, a great outward doing. And that was certainly the case for John Wesley, who in his days in Oxford had a club called the Holy Club. It was kind of a pompous name, I always thought, the Holy Club at Oxford. They met to fast and study the Bible and evangelize and visit the poor. And as he wrote about that time in his life later on, he said this, quote, I had even then the faith of a servant, but not that of a son. It wasn't only until, in his own words, that he said that he came to, quote, trust in Christ, in Christ only for my salvation, that an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death, end quote. You see, it was only after that he learned to rest on Christ that, he, that his experience of God really changed. As he famously says, that his heart was strangely 
transformed. His experience of God changed. That's the second thing that Paul says we have in our adoption. We have a new experience of God. In verse 6, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. God sent the Spirit. That parallels verse 4. God sent His Son. He sends His Son and then He sends His Spirit. He sent the Son to secure the legal status of our sonship, but He sends us the Spirit so that we might experience our sonship. What is this experience that He writes of like? Well, Paul says that the Spirit within us cries out within us and through us. It's a very strong Greek word that means a rending, a loud cry, almost a wailing. It refers to deep and profound passion and feeling. And it's also a word that's used in the Bible to refer to prayer. The Spirit, in other words, prays in us and through us with deep passion for the Father. As Paul says in Romans, that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. He inwardly gives us a confidence of love and an assurance of welcome, teaching us to call God Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. It's not transliterate. He literally plugged in an Aramaic word, an Aramaic phrase, in a Greek letter to Greek-speaking Galatians. Why would he do that? Most of the Galatians probably didn't know Aramaic at all. He did it because this is the term that Jesus Christ himself used when he talked to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Abba, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It was a daringly familiar term to use to address the Almighty. The very Spirit of Jesus Christ is given into our heart and grants us to feel the affections of belonging to God's own eternal family. I can think of two things that we can do in order to better live, in order to better experience your sonship, your adoption. The first one is this. Put aside significant time to study the work of the Son, asking the Spirit to illuminate it and make it real to you. After all, He is called the Spirit of the Son. The close connection between verses 4 and 5, the work of the Son, and verses 6 and 7, the work of the Spirit, means that we must learn to meditate on the Bible. In other words, to connect our prayer to our study of the Word and our study of the Word to our prayer. The work of the Son and the work of the Spirit shouldn't be divorced, nor one made to obscure the other. The fullness of the Spirit is experienced as we meditate on the love of the Son, and the gifts of the Son are enjoyed as we look to the Spirit to guide us. So, so one of them is this. Spend time meditating on the Word, especially the work of Christ for you, and ask the Spirit, make this real to me. But sometimes we don't spend enough time meditating on our status as God's children because we're not confident to come to Him in true repentance for the various sins that we've committed. And that blocks our experience of intimacy with God. 
And so the second thing you can do is meditate on what Christ has done for you and come to God, not with resolutions to do better, but come in repentance, receiving the gift that he has given you in Christ. I know, I know a man who spent a, a week in the beginning by meditating on Christ's work for him and then went systematically through his life all the, in the entire week, repenting of sins and calling out to God and asking for forgiveness. But the first two days, he just said, okay, I'm just going to meditate on what God has done for me in Christ, and then I'm going to repent of every sin that I can find in my life. And the amazing thing was this. He said that by the end of the week, he was shocked that the words, Abba, Daddy, came unbidden to his lips in prayer. He was experiencing God's love for him. And as we seek to move closer to God in prayer, the Spirit will do his work, assuring us that we are God's children and that we are co-heirs with Christ, which is God's, uh, Paul's third point to the Galatians, that we have a new inheritance from God. Verse 7, he says this, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, than an heir of God through Christ. We are adopted into God's family. We are made God's heirs. In the ancient world, the only reason that someone would adopt their slave, would adopt their servant, was so that they could be their heir. If a, a, a man of an estate was childless um, or had sons that were dissolute, he would adopt one of his servants in order to um, have someone to pass on his inheritance to. All right? um, Abraham actually speaks to God about this when he's uh, speaking to God and he says that he's, God has not yet given him a son and behold, Eleazar of Damascus is my heir. It was a servant of his. All right, this happened from Old Testament times into the Roman world. But we are now heirs of God through Christ. And this is why it's, um, I think it's important that we preserve the word son, that you are all sons of God, because in that time period, sons were the heirs. It's not a, a chauvinistic thing that Paul is doing, that he can't say children, sons and daughters, but he's wanting to drive home the point that you are an heir of God, men and women. The astonishing fact of our adoption in Christ is that we are treated as if we are only sons, just like Jesus. What is, this, what is this inheritance? Well, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. We are holy and without blame before God. We're given, it says, the riches of his grace. The very spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, is given into us as a down payment of our full inheritance. And our full inheritance is given when Christ returns and we are given resurrection bodies like his and a new heavens and a new earth. Paul elaborates on this in Romans where he says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. What wonderful 
news this is for all of us who suffer or under illness or age, that the bodies that we inhabit now are not what we will have forever, but God will give us resurrection life just as he has his only beloved son. This is good news for all of us who are beset with sin, that God will one day, as Paul says, deliver us from the body of sin, that we will live in perfect freedom. It's good news for all of us whose lives are torn with strife within our families or within our communities, because God has promised you to inherit a world in which righteousness dwells. Our redemption was for the purpose of our resurrection. We were redeemed in order to be adopted. Ultimately, our inheritance is to know and love God fully, unencumbered by sin or any effects of the curse. Friend, this relativizes all of your hardships and sufferings in life, even though they are true sufferings, because we know that they are temporary and ultimately for our good, that we would be conformed into the image of his resurrected son. And all of this is given to you in your adoption. Christ's own status before the Father, the very Spirit of God to assure us of His love, an unshakable hope in the future. It's easy to see why in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, why on earth would you want to return to slavery? When you grasp what you have through your adoption in Christ, it makes every self-righteousness project laughable. It gives you the grounds for an intimate relationship with the Father, and it is the end of all anxiety. So may God press home our adoption in Christ to us in our hearts and in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the redemption that we have in your Son, Jesus, that he died for our sins and is alive from the dead. We thank you that you have united us to him by faith and given us the status of your children. Lord, help us to believe that and live in light of that in ever greater ways we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.